Thank you, Chad, for reading that passage from Psalm 46. I want you to understand the purpose behind it, which is that when you read that psalm, you recognize something about the majesty of God, the glory of God, the power of God, the awe-inspiring nature of God. I don't think us will to go there by the grace of God. That is our destination, to be in his presence someday, to join that number that we read about in the book of Revelation that is before his throne and, and sings, you are worthy, you are worthy, over and over again. All the angels and seraphim all joined before God's throne. And the reason I bring that up and wanted Chad to read that passage this morning is because even though it may not seem like it at first, this is Paul's emphasis in today's text. Now today's text is in First Corinthians 14. We're going to start in verse 26 and read down for a few verses there through verse 33. And on the surface, it appears that Paul is laying down rules about how to speak in tongues in the, in the church. But in fact, Paul is saying, when you come into worship, you come into the presence of Almighty God. Is this the place for ego displays? Is this the place for patting yourselves on your own back and attempting to prove that you're holier than the other people in the room? Is this the place to show off your spirituality, or is this the place for humility and for worship? Face on the floor, at least in spirit, if not in reality, humble worship before God. And so I think it's the second, and I want you to keep Psalm 46 in mind as we dig into and study through uh, 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26. So I'm hoping to show you then that the principles that Paul lays down in this text have eternal value. They look like they're, it looks like Paul's talking about tongues, but there's eternal value here, and, and, and especially in relationship to the most important task that we face, and that is the task of standing together as the body of Christ in preaching the gospel and in strengthening the church and in making disciples of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26. Paul says, What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, tongue, or another language, or an interpretation of that language. All things must be done for edification. If I could encourage you to underline one line in this, in this text, it would be that last sentence there in verse 26. All things must be done for edification. Underline that. At least in your mind, it is the central theme of today's message, and it's the, I believe, could arguably be the central theme of the entire epistle of 1 Corinthians. Then Paul says in verse 27, if any person speaks in another language, there should be only two, or at the most, three, each in turn, and someone must interpret. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the modern translations, not just the HCSB, but all the modern translations tend to fudge the word that we have translated here as someone. Someone must interpret. In fact, it's actually very clear in the original language, only one person interprets all three of the tongue's speakers. So you have three people who are going to speak in unlearned languages, and then one person will interpret all three messages. One must interpret. If you have the King James, that's exactly what it says. One must interpret. But it, it, if you have a translation that says someone must interpret, pull those two words apart. Some one person must interpret. Okay? So that's just to be clear about that, and I'm not going to hammer that anymore. Now, verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should evaluate. 
But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. May God again bless the reading of his word. Now, we're going to start by getting down in the weeds and looking at the details of this passage, but we're going to also be seeing, as we go deeper into it, we're going to see more and more of the big picture Not just what related to Corinth 2,000 years ago, but what relates to Hawkwood Baptist Church right here, right now, in the 21st century. Again, just by way of reminder as we dig in, at first glance this passage applies strictly to the use of languages in public worship, but as you're going to see, Paul's rules encompass the whole spectrum of corporate Christian worship and corporate Christian conduct. So here's where it applies to us. His rules imply incorporate the whole spectrum of corporate Christian conduct. So let's just look at them one rule at a time. And here's rule number one, universal rules apply universally. Notice what he says as he begins this part of 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 the chapter. Whenever you come together, just let that phrase sink into your mind, whenever you come together, and it absolutely means anytime Christians get together, whether spontaneously or perhaps in small groups or at a set time for for formal worship, such as we're involved with right now on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. In every every case, these rules apply. Uh, Wherever Christians get together in Jesus' name, the same rules always apply. Ethics, morals, and propriety don't change from one setting to another. Let's just think about that for a moment. Ethics, morals, and propriety, that is what is acceptable, does not change What is pleasing to God does not change from one setting to another. Now you get four or five guys on a a fishing trip or a hunting trip, and it may be that subjects get discussed that have no business being discussed among godly people. Jokes offered that have no business among godly people. And you say, well, it's different because it's just four or five of us. Let me interrupt to say, I'm pretty sure that when women get together, they never deal with anything that's not appropriate. I'm sure they always speak in heavenly and spiritual tones with one another, language in their conversation with one another. If that's not the case, please don't tell me because I don't want to know. I'm pretty sure all women are completely pure about everything all the time. But, um, but anyway, and I want to keep that fantasy in my mind. But, uh, <laughs> but the fact is, What is appropriate for Christians doesn't change from one setting to another. It simply doesn't. And why not? Because the issue is never what we can get away with in a particular setting, but rather what is pleasing to the God who is always with us wherever we go. It's in Him and before Him that we live and move and have our being. I'd like to say I've never offended in this area. I can't say that. But I can say that God has convicted me about that, has convicted me about that. We need to understand that we live and move and have our being in God all the time. And what's appropriate never changes because we're always in his sight. Let me give you rule number one from a different perspective, if I may. Let's go to the next slide. This is rule number one stated in the Lord of the Rings. Now remember, the rule number one is universal rules apply universally. Some of you have already probably twigged on to the fact that my favorite book outside of the Bible is The Lord of the Rings. And um, 
And, and I'm just fascinated by this particular statement. Uh, let me just suggest, if, if you think you know the Lord of the Rings because you saw the movies, uh-uh. doesn't even start to, you know, I, I, okay, now I'm, now I'm going way off topic here. But, uh, but anyway, this is from the, the second book, uh, The Two Towers. And at one point, there's a character named Aylmer who says, how is a man to judge what to do in such times? And he's talking about times like the times we live in. That is where suddenly you find corruption where you never expected to find it, and you find men failing where you expected them not to fail. And, and so it's hard to know how to judge who to follow and what to do and where your loyalties lie in times like these. That was what was quest- Those were the questions Aylmer had in mind. And he says, how's a man to judge what to do in such times? As he has ever judged, said Aragorn, good and evil have not changed since yesteryear nor are they one thing among elves and another among men. It is a man's part to discern them as much in the golden wood as in his own house. God help us then to discern between good and evil and to know that they are the same wherever we go. What is appropriate, what is inappropriate in church would be inappropriate in a small group just as much or inappropriate even where two or three just happen to spontaneously get together. So that's rule number one. Universal rules apply universally. Rule number two. Every Christian is competent to minister. Notice what it says in verse 26. Each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, an interpretation. In those days, talking about 2,000 years ago now, everyone contributed to public worship as they wished. Uh, You might be studying the Bible during the week, and God's word just spoke to you, and you said, man, I'm going to share that with everybody on Sunday. I would say that's probably more appropriate in a small group today, but either way, you could say, I want to share that. And people understood that they were expected to share something uh, that, they, that they might have, a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, you name it. Nowadays, this approach to worship is honored perhaps more in theory than in fact, but even today, we should practice the principle that every Christian has something to contribute to the well-being of the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you have something to contribute to the well-being of the body of Christ. Let me put it to you as a rhetorical question. Is every Christian born again? The answer is yes. Every Christian is born again. Does every Christian possess the Spirit? The answer is yes. Every Christian possesses the Spirit. I could add to that. Does every Christian have access to the Word of God? And the answer is yes. Every Christian has access to the Word of God. In today's world, even if you don't read, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of ways that you can access the spoken Word of God. On the Internet, through CDs or recordings of various types, all of us have access to the Word of God. So then from the Bible's perspective, the entire congregation is able to understand and apply God's word to life. Every single one of us as Christians are expected to understand and apply God's word to life. Every Christian should be competent to share the gospel. Every one of you should be competent to tell people how to believe in Jesus, how to be born again, how to be saved. Competent to share the gospel and teach the basic truths of the faith as well as exhort others to obedience. God help us to do what we're called upon to do. So that's rule number two. Every Christian is competent to minister. Rule number three, always be building the body, the body of Christ. I told you before, underline this last sentence in verse 26. All things must be done for edification. Edification means to build up and to build up the body of Christ. Paul is single-minded about this point. 
You could even say it's the main theme of the entire epistle. I think an argument could be made, because if you go back to chapter 1 and skim through or read through 1 Corinthians, you're going to find him returning to the importance of the body and body life and body ministry and the contribution that every member makes to the life of the body over and over and over again throughout this epistle. Our attitude toward the church then, our intentions toward the church, our actions regarding the church matter to God. Do you think they don't? Listen to what Paul writes in another place. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Have you ever thought about it? When you are at that peak of of emotional commitment to your spouse, whether it's the husband to the wife or the wife to the husband, and there's that moment when your heart just is exploding with love and the joy of the fact that she has said yes or he has asked, and you're going to be married, and you are married, you're just newly wed, and there's just this glory about the relationship, understand that that's the same feeling Christ has toward the church. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Do you think that in those days, do you think in any days a man who loves his his wife is going to let somebody speak ill of her in his presence? I don't think so. And vice versa. A woman who loves her husband is not going to let other people speak ill about her husband in her presence. And think about Jesus and how he feels toward the church. And So I say to you again, and I challenge you to think about this. Our attitude toward the church, our intentions toward the church, our actions regarding the church matter to God. They matter to God. If Christ cares this much for the church, don't you think that he cares about your attitude toward his, his bride, toward the church? Listen, the opposite's also true. If we're to always be building the body, shouldn't we also be striving to never be guilty of deliberately tearing it down or neglecting it? I think if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you're going to find in verse 16 that there Paul writes that we are the, not just the body of Christ, we are the temple of God. Remember that? We're the temple of God, the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle, that filled Solomon's temple. That Shekinah glory was removed from the temple long before it was destroyed in Jerusalem. Why? Because on the day of Pentecost, that Shekinah glory then filled the hearts and lives of the 120 believers in the upper room. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God. And what does Paul say in the very next verse? If anybody destroys that temple, God will destroy them. He cares about his church. He cares that you care about the church, that the church matter to you, that the body of Christ be your consuming passion to build it up, to strengthen it, to expand it. Now, I'm just going to barely mention rules four and five. We, I give you a little bit of an explanation. In the, if you want the printed text, you can have that later. But for the sake of time, let me just remind you what rule four is. Gifts with limited applicability should have limited expression. We're talking about the gift of tongues here, and it has a limited applicability, as I, refer, as I told you about in previous weeks. It's to warn unbelieving Jews about the upcoming destruction of the temple, the end of the old covenant, and so forth. That all happened in 70 AD. And so the primary use of the gift of tongues, I'm not saying there aren't miracles of communication in modern times. Of course there are. But the primary use of the gift of tongues ended with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so gifts with limited Limited applicability should have limited expression. And you can notice then that the next rule, number five, says that if there's no interpreter, there should be no languages spoken. And so all I can say then is, let's understand then that even before the temple was destroyed, Paul was putting limitations on tongues in various ways. Never more than two or at the most three, and never 
when there's no interpreter present. You can see that in verse 28. But I'll just say this before we move rapidly on. I actually think if this last rule, you know, the, the one that's on before you just now, if there's no interpreter, then no languages should be spoken. If this last rule were followed in modern times, it would likely eliminate the tongues-speaking movement from the world. Because every church that I've ever known of, and I've been to some, every church where tongues are being spoken, you always find there's a time when it's, you know, they, they sort of say, you know, have fun, let go, do whatever you want to do. And so for the next five minutes or ten minutes, there's this cacophony of sound, almost a bedlam of people speaking in who knows what kinds of tongues as the sounds come out of their mouth, as the nonsense sounds, nonsense from our perspective, at the very least, come out of their mouths. And so we need to be careful about rules four and five and uh, understand they still have a, a kind of a negative applicability to our day. But now let's go on to rule number six, where I want to to contrast the limited applicability of tongues to the unlimited expression of prophecy. And that's rule number six, that we're to give unlimited expression to prophecy. I don't want to go too far into this just now, but let me remind you that back in the first verse of this chapter, Paul says that every Christian is to desire the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. I can't imagine that we're, that we're commanded to desire it without the possibility of having it, receiving it. It is the universal gift that the Spirit gives to every Christian, this gift of prophecy. Now, we need to define it properly, and we will in just a moment, but still, it's the universal gift. So, notice then that Paul treats prophecy differently than he does tongues. Now, he starts, he, he sort of sounds the same at first. Two or three prophets should speak. But notice he does not say two or at the most three. He just says two or three should speak. There's a huge difference between Paul's limitations on tongues and his wide open door for prophecy. In fact, in verse 31, and we're going to see this twice just now, but in verse 31, he's going to say, for you can all prophesy one by one. There he just opens the door wide open. His only concern is courtesy. And that's why in verse 30, he speaks of each prophecy being ready to let another prophet have a turn. In other words, there should never be a time when one forceful personality dominates everybody else. And I would say that's absolutely true the more you move into like small groups and things of that sort. There's never, there should never be a time when one forceful personality dominates everyone else. Now, you can see Paul's strong preference for prophecy revealed in verse 31. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. Notice that. Learning and encouragement are the result of prophecy. I hope you're seeing this. Everyone may prophesy, and in so doing, everyone is encouraged. It's clear from this verse, then, that Paul is still working from the original definition of prophecy that he gave back in chapter 14, verse 3, where he said that prophecy means speaking God's word in a known language. Now, in Corinth, that would have been Greek. In Calgary, that would be English. Uh, some of us barely know it. I'm struggling with it myself, but, but never let, you know what I'm saying. Uh, speaking God's word in a known language for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, also for encouraging Christians, as well as consoling them. So the real question for today is this. Are you, I'm, I'm asking you to answer for yourself, are you speaking words to build up and encourage fellow Christians? Are you practicing your gift of prophecy? That is, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through you, to build up people in their faith and their understanding, to encourage them in their daily Christian walk, and to console them with God's forgiveness and grace when they are conscious of failure and sin? 
If each of us was doing that for everyone else, what a strength we would be to one another. What a strong church we would have. God help us. I'm not saying we don't have a strong church already. I, I'll match Hawkwood against any church I know of for just strength and faithfulness and continuing on with the cause of Christ. No matter what's going on around us Cal, uh, in Calgary or in the wider world, Hawkwood Baptist Church carries on with the ministry of God's Word and ministering to people from, from, from all over the world. And I say thank God for that. But how are you personally doing in allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through you to build up people in their faith? How do you do that? Only by giving them the truth of God's word. You see, to be a prophet is to be a student of God's word. We're going to say more about that in a moment. But to be a prophet is to be a student of God's word. You can't build up another person without telling them something true about God. You can't tell them something true about God unless you know what the word of God says. You can't give them new information about his character, about his faithfulness, about his holiness, about his call to to ministry and service unless you are giving them something more about the word of God. So, are you a channel by which God can use his word and his spirit to build up the church? And if you are not, you need to be able to answer, why not? I'm not even going to go there. You need to be able to answer, why not? God help us to be channels of his spirit and his word. Now, we're going to chase a rabbit for a moment. I want to answer a question that you may not be asking, but a whole lot of Christians are asking this question. Should every believer be a minister? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the liturgical churches, and let me just be clear about this, I'm thinking primarily of Roman Catholicism, but the liturgical churches, and the Roman Catholic Church in particular, their suggestion is that if just anybody can handle the Word of God, if everybody prophesies or teaches, their argument is, won't there be confusion with one person saying one thing and another person contradicting him? You know that for 1,200 years, the Roman Catholic Church formally withheld the scriptures from the people. The laity, they said, to distinguish the people. Uh, I grew up, I still remember, kind of, I think, remember when I was about 11 or 12 years old, for the first time the word lay Christian fell on my ears, and I was like, what is a lay Christian? Who are the laity? I heard these words coming from people in the church in some discussion, and I didn't know what that was all about. And they said, oh, well, you got your pastor... He's the ordained man. He's the one who's called of God. The rest of us are lay Christians. We're just ordinary Christians. And so this false Catholic distinction between the ordained and the unordained had persisted and inserted itself even into a Southern Baptist church, if you can imagine such a thing happening, an actual something going wrong in a Southern Baptist church. I know that's more than you can imagine, but it it did happen. It did happen. And, And it does happen. But you hear what I'm saying there's this false distinction between ordained and lay. And, and while it's, it's, it's not recognized formally within Baptist, we still, within the Baptist churches, we still follow it, but it is a formal distinction within Catholicism. You've got your priesthood, the real church, the real Christians, and everybody else. It's a false distinction, not found in Scripture. And so to keep the Bible from being accessible to the laity, because they might misunderstand it, they might abuse it, and so forth, to keep the Bible from them, they insisted on using it and reading it only in Latin. Their idea was, here's the gateway. You have to be enough of a scholar to learn Latin before you can access the Bible. That was their gate. And and boy, they were gatekeepers too. They wanted to make sure that not just anybody could get in there. You knew the Reformation was on its way when people like Tyndale and Wycliffe 
began to talk about translating the Bible so that even the plowboys in the field could read it for themselves and understand it. That was the beginning of the Reformation. Hundreds of years before it actually burst forth under Luther, you had these men saying, we're going to give the word of God to the people. And why was that so important? Because the Catholic Church never faced the fact that in depriving people of God's word, they were also cutting their spiritual privileges right out from under them. That is, if you don't know the promises of God, how can you depend upon the promises of God? If you don't know the true character of God, how can you trust in God's faithfulness to operate in your life? And the only way we can know these things is from our own knowledge of the Word of God. And so the Catholic Church was refusing to give God's people the necessary foundation for a victorious Christian life. Well, they were afraid, you know, if we give the Word of God to the, to the, to the people, it'll, the, the world will splinter into thousands of different denominations, and every, every individual will read the Bible for himself and imagine that he can be his own pope and interpret it for himself, and so forth. The fact is, in modern times, the Catholic Church, I think, is just as splintered as any version of Protestantism you might find. And today they're going through a crisis of authority in which a whole lot of faithful Catholics have come to believe that the current pope is an outright heretic. The problem is, they don't know what to do about it. They can hardly say that he's a heretic because as the pope, he is supposed to be infallible in matters of faith. They lack, and I want you to hear this carefully because this applies to you, they lack the privilege that God has afforded to every Christian. What is that privilege? That when the situation requires to feel, uh, to feel free to stand up, that is, each individual Christian to stand up with his Bible in his hand and pronounce hogwash to be hogwash, if that's the case, so that every believer can see it and understand it for himself. God bless the people at Mars Hill Church a few years ago when Rob Bell published his book, Love Wins, which very clearly enunciated the heresy that there is no hell and that eventually everybody goes to heaven. And the church people themselves stood up and said, Sorry, Rob, you're our beloved pastor. You've been with us for almost 20 years, and we're done with you because you have departed from the truth. You've departed from the Word of God. And off he went into everlasting darkness. And I, I'm pretty sure that's the case. You should hear the way he's talking now. No, you shouldn't hear the way he's talking now. But, in fact, in fact, this Catholic fear that if we give people the Bible, the truth is going to you know, be broken into a thousand splinters. This Catholic fear, this is wrong. We don't have to fear the results from everybody prophesying or preaching, and as, as I'm advocating. I hope all of you can preach. I hope all of you will prophesy. We don't have to fear that happening, because even as Paul encouraged every Christian to prophesy, at the same time, he built in a huge safeguard to prevent the message from getting muddled, and we find that as rule number seven from this text, and that is that every church must establish multiple layers of accountability. Do you see it in verse 29? Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. The others should evaluate. Evaluating another's teaching in the light of God's Word is a wonderful exercise that will help every Christian grow in maturity. Because for one thing, in evaluating others, uh, God's people learn that they cannot rely on feelings alone to guide them, but rather from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, why do I put it like that to you? Well, let me explain what happens. Let's suppose that I'm preaching, and, uh, and I say something that, that you don't really like. 
or you don't agree with. Think about how you can interact with me afterward. And by the way, I'm grateful when people interact with me afterward. I don't always have the answer. I don't always, uh, you know, maybe I can't always put everything to rest or settle every discussion in, in the immediate set, setting there, but I like it when, when you come and talk to me about something I said from the pulpit because it means you were listening, and I deeply appreciate when you're listening. I'd rather you listened and disagreed than went to sleep. I'm serious. I'd much rather that you listened and disagreed. So I'm glad you come to me afterward. But let's just suppose that, you, that I say something and you don't agree or you don't like it. Do you think it's enough to just come and say, well, Pastor, Pastor Schaefer, I, I just didn't like what you said this morning. You know what my probable response, at least in my own mind, I may be more gracious on the outside, but if you just simply say, I don't like it, it didn't feel right, what am I going to do in my own head? Well, tough. I'm just preaching the truth. It's up to you to get your life right with God according to his truth. At least that's going to be in my mind, however I say it out loud. But if you really think I've made a mistake, you'll come and you'll actually open God's word, and you'll read the phrase, and you'll say, now, Schaefer, you said this, but does this phrase or this sentence or this verse, does it really say that? And suddenly we're into a discussion of God's word, and you become a Bible scholar just in correcting me or correcting your small group leader or correcting your best friend or correcting your wife or your husband. In challenging someone with the word of God, your scholarship is strengthened. Does that make sense to you? It's, it, we, we've moved it away from feelings. Now, I'm not saying that we don't respond to God's word, sometimes appreciating it and loving it, and other times maybe with less appreciation or at least with less joy as the word of God convicts us or something of that sort. But nevertheless, in being a a, a part of the accountability team of Hawkwood Baptist Church, you have to deal with the word of God in what it says, not just how you feel about it. And so you understand then that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And and you hear Isaiah as he thunders in chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn or no light for them. You see, what Paul is doing is he's trying to wean the Corinthians off tongues and move them towards scripture-informed judgment of everything they experience. And so we're to draw clear and objective conclusions based upon Scripture. We're to discuss our our understanding of God's Word with one another based on what the Word says, not how we feel about it. And so we're to draw near, we're to to, talk about Scripture as, as evaluated by others as we read in today's text. Now, I do need to ask the question and try to answer it. Who are these others who do the evaluating? I've already hinted at one of them. You are part of the first circle of evaluation, that is, Those who hear me speak from the pulpit, all of you, you're part of that first circle of evaluation. You're evaluating me now. And and that's right. That's as it should be. Or anyone else who stands up here who leads in prayer or gives a Bible study or preaches or in one of our Sunday school classes or in a small group leadership setting or wherever they may be, the circle around you, they're the first circle of evaluation in your teaching. And then, of course, there's the elders of the church. When you go beyond this circle, if there's something really serious, we're, we're very concerned that the pastor is now teaching something that just isn't so, isn't right, isn't, is, isn't consistent with, with our faith, and so forth. Then you go to the elders, and they are tasked. Acts chapter 20 explicitly tasks the elders to watch over the word and the doctrine and to make sure that those who teach are 
in the right place. So first there's the circle of hearers. You're in that circle. Then there's, a, there's, there's the elders, and then there's the leader, leaders of the denomination. And occasionally you'll hear about a church that's disciplined by a denomination because they're beginning to move into something that's inconsistent with Scripture and so forth. And then finally, there are, and I, for lack of a better term, it's a term I'm just making up on the spot almost, uh, but, but I'm calling these the elders of church history. Now, what do I mean by the elders of church history? Well, I'm talking about 2,000 years of pastors and evangelists and missionaries and scholars and teachers going right back to the first century. And, and, and their writings come down to us to this day. And so we are to submit our prophecy, our teaching, to the judgment of others and, in a sense, to the judgment of all. Now, long before there was a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, way back in the very first centuries, there were just churches, and they all worked together. And the idea of having a name for a denomination never occurred to anybody because we're all just the Church of Christ or the church, you know, the, 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 the body of Christ and so forth. In 434, there was a man named Vincent of Larens. And, um, and he said this, speaking of how to know what's true and what's not false, what's not, what, what's not true. He spoke of the true faith as that faith which has been believed everywhere, always by all. What a great quote, in my view. That faith. You want to know the true faith? It is that faith which has been believed everywhere, always by all. I'm convinced this principle continues to stand the test of time. Mutual accountability, then, will keep the church on track, feeding on the truth of God's word. And that brings us to rule number eight. Heretics are spotted by their hatred of accountability. You know, we're to keep each, keep each other accountable. If you're a true child of God, you want to be on course. And you're afraid of going off course. And you're grateful when people put you back on course. Especially when they can demonstrate from the Word of God what that course is. And they can show you that for 2,000 years, godly men and women have consistently contributed this kind of understanding to this particular issue, and they can bring you back on course. And the true children of God, the true members of the body of Christ, appreciate that kind of accountability. But heretics are the opposite. Have you ever noticed that when a person wants to be a renegade and teach something that's not only new, but also contrary, and let me just be clear, there's a distinction between new, which may be a wonderful thing, or something that is new and contrary. That is a terrible thing. So they want to teach something contrary to widely accepted truth, and the first thing these kind of people generally do is leave the body of Christ. They set themselves up as independents. They start their own church, their own ministry. Now, I want to be really clear about something. I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not against everything that's new. There's nothing wrong with seeking new truth as long as it is consistent with all that came before. The Word of God is alive and always fresh. And, of course, where there's life, where there's fresh new life, there's going to be something new there. You can tell a tree is alive because it will put out new leaves and it will grow new limbs. But the new limbs are consistent, and the new leaves that come out, these are all consistent with everything that's grown, been grown by the tree before. Those who study God's Word then in the power of the Spirit will receive new insights and new applications, and they will find new ways of harmonizing or refining eternal truths with modern life, and, and these are all wonderful things. But the renegade isn't interested in new and deeper understandings consistent with the Bible or the Word of God. 
When he says new, he means something contrary to all that came before. So he refuses accountability. He will say things like, and I could name uh, uh, Charles Taze Russell to give you an explicit example, who said everything, everyone who came before me got it wrong. Joseph Smith, the founders of the Mormons, everybody who came before me got it wrong. He even claimed that an angel from heaven came down to assure him that everybody before him had gotten it wrong. He was the only one who was going to get it right. And these renegades say everything before me is wrong. I'm the only one who can get it right. And that, dear friends, is how we get Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christian scientists, but also in modern times, things like Christian social justice movement, which is little more than cultural Marxism with a tinge of Christianity on top, and the movement to deny hell and heaven. I've already mentioned Rob Bell, but just this past week, I learned that one of the most prominent pastors in Arkansas, apparently pastoring the largest church in, uh, in Arkansas and, and, and possibly the largest church in, in one of the largest churches in the southeastern United States, and he was, at a, he was preaching at a funeral service this past week, and he said, I'm going to tell you something you need to hear. You've never heard it from me before, but it's the truth. There is no heaven. There is no hell. When you die, you just die. I couldn't believe it when I read it. It's national news. It's not some secret thing. But I'm just saying, this whole movement to deny heaven and hell, and the movement to embrace homosexuality and say you can be a Christian and a homosexual, or you can be a Christian and live a transgender lifestyle within the church, and, and we'll embrace all these things and all these behaviors, all of these things, these antichrist philosophies are put forward by renegades who refuse accountability from the word of God. And that brings us to our last rule, and in some ways perhaps the most important. Rule number nine, disciples manage their gifts. From verse 32, notice what it says. And the prophets' spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. In other words, a person who interrupts others just to display their facility with tongues, or you interrupt the rest of everybody just to prophesy because you've got something that just has to be said and it can't wait, these kind of people should not blame the Holy Spirit. They're not spirit-filled, they're just rude. Let's be clear. They're just rude. Actually, a couple of years ago, we had a family who worshipped with us for a few times, and they, they came and talked about membership with Pastor Sig and with myself. And then we discovered that not only did they believe in speaking in tongues, uh, but actually a couple of members of the family were very militant in insisting that if the Holy Spirit falls on me and tells me to speak in tongues, I'm just going to do it. I have to do it. He makes me do it. I'll just burst out with tongues right here in the congregation, right in the middle of the service, whatever else is going on. If that's what God tells me to do, I have to do it. I don't have a choice. We took them to this passage, and they acted like they couldn't even see it. And so we encouraged them not to join, to be frank with you. Because again, such people are not spirit-filled. They're just rude. Now, whatever else you've heard me say this morning, I want your heart to be as wide open and your mind as ready to receive this as it possibly can be. There is no time when the Holy Spirit simply takes over and operates us like robots. There's no time when he turns us into automatons. The Holy Spirit is in our lives to support the work of God in us. That is, he makes us new. He makes us new creations in Christ Jesus. And he helps us to fight spiritual battles. And, to, and he encourages us during times of, of hard sledding in life. And he empowers us to accomplish more than mere flesh and blood could ever do. But he never causes us 
to lose control, nor does he ever take control away from us. God help us to hear that. He never causes us to lose control, nor does he ever take control away from us. And yet, the loss of control or the giving up of control is the very hallmark of most modern tongues-speaking, charismatic churches. People who are trying to speak in tongues, for example, are told, I've been there, dear friends, I've seen it, I've even experienced it in my own life a number of years ago, where I was told to just let go and speak the first nonsense that comes to mind. Don't worry if it doesn't make sense, just give yourself to the Spirit and let Him carry you wherever He wants. You'll be speaking in tongues in no time. Just let go and let whatever Spirit enters into you take over. That is fundamental charismatic doctrine. Unfortunately, the charismatic movement never stops with speaking in tongues. In a mad quest for ecstatic experiences, they're always wanting to sort of lose themselves in, in some kind of an ecstatic control, ecstatic loss of control. So in a mad quest for experience, then charismaticism goes on into such strange behaviors as being slain in the spirit, barking like dogs, roaring like lions, laughing like idiots, and a whole lot more besides. You may have heard of the Toronto Vineyard Airport Vineyard Church, for instance, where all these things have been going on continuously since 1994. And people have flown into Toronto literally from all over the world just to experience this kind of craziness. And then their goal is always, I want to take this spirit back with me. I want to bring it back to my church, wherever I am. Here's a testimony from Glenda Waddell, who uh, describes her experience when the Toronto blessing uh, came to to her church. I I left out something I really want to say. Uh, Again, one one of the outstanding features of this movement is that once you give yourself over to whatever spirit is at work there, it does take complete control and it leaves no no control to the person. So here's Glenda Waddell's experience when the Toronto blessing was brought to her church. This is in print. You can read it for yourself. She says, To my absolute horror, I just knew beyond any shadow of doubt my hands were doing strange things and I was going to roar. I said, Oh Lord, do anything but please Please don't make me roar. Only the men roar and the women don't roar. But it came and I did roar quite loudly and I made a lot of awful noise and I was crawling around the floor doing terrible things and half of me was thinking, this cannot be me, but another part of me knew that it was. That's where you go when you open the door to giving away control. And Paul says, rule number nine Disciples manage their gifts. At no point are you to be out of control. At every point, the Holy Spirit works with you, but you remain in control. He never takes control out of your hands. God help us to understand then that at every point, we are responsible for everything we think, say, and do, especially in kingdom work.